the only podcast where the worlds of work, comedy and well-being collide. I'm your host, Callie Beaton, and this episode is called The Empire Strikes Back, even though it has absolutely nothing to do with Star Wars. One of the things that does come up in the conversation today is the Netflix documentary Wild Wild Country, which I absolutely loved. Some of you might have seen it. And it's about a cult in Oregon whose leader, Bhagwan Rajneesh, it turns out shares a birthday with my daughter and today's guest. To be fair, Bagwan is not the best person for my daughter to be associated with, what with the bioterror attacks and the assassination plots and all. But it is a bloody good documentary. There's a link to it in the show notes. And cults are grim, aren't they? I mean, no shit. But there's something fascinating about them, not least because of how and why people are compelled to follow and blindly obey cult leaders, even though they're psychopathic. I guess the capital attack shows that cults and their leaders take many shapes and forms. Long may the great orange misogynist buffoon be kept far away from seats of power and influence. Amen. I'm very, very busy. I have to run because there are at least two more funerals waiting. That's my guest today, Anavab Pal. A small town in Western Massachusetts was once the epicentre of a New Age cult. Their leader was such an arsehole that the community paid him $10,000 to leave. I have to say, I've had bosses in the past where I'd have almost been tempted to do the same. But that's the good thing about comedy, no more bosses, or paychecks, or job security. Yay! In the 13th century, people in the Dôme region in France started worshipping a dog that had died saving a child. The church did their best to quash this cult, but it was still practised well into the 20th century. And the Perfects were a medieval cult whose members gave up sex and meat in order to become angels. I mean, vegetarianism maybe, but... Mm. I will make sure it gets to every single of the 1.3 billion people you want. Every I'm relying single. on you for that. Anna Vabpal is a screenwriter, comedian, playwright and novelist, and basically one of my favourite people in the whole world. He started out as an accidental stand-up when the comedy store opened in a Mumbai shopping mall in 2010, and he has since toured the world as a very popular comedian. He's a regular face and voice on the BBC and the only Indian comedian to have appeared on Just a Minute with Nicholas Parsons. He's obsessed with history and India's relationship with Britain and his esoteric material often, to quote one reviewer, pokes the British Empire with a stick. Anavab and I talked about death, cremation, traditions, drumming, Edinburgh shows, family, Starbucks India, Eddie Izzard, Railways, dick pics, Bollywood, Camden Town, improvisation and people born on the 27th of April. But we started by talking about where Anavab was recording from when we spoke. I'm in my parents' house because I um, had a script to finish. So... Uh, my partner and I have been living here for about two and a half, three weeks. And I, I mean, I have a story that you might find amusing that I can just start telling you. Um, 
I don't know if we are already in the podcast or not. But, we can be in the uh, podcast, out of the podcast, dip in and out of the podcast. But please, any funny stories you have in or out of the podcast are very welcome. It just, just happened today. And I thought I would, I would mention this to you because I knew we were doing this in the evening. My father's 85. And he has a, this is quite, I don't know if this is a morbid story or not, but basically has a lot of friends who are passing away. And uh, for whatever reason, I've realized now that I'm living at home, I have certain responsibilities. He doesn't want to go and meet um, the gathering of the deceased or whatever. So he, now that I'm in town, he requested me to go with my mom. So I've attended like four different <laughs> very awkward gatherings where my mom doesn't really know what to say because the guy was 95 he was going to pass away <laughs> friend of my dad's very old man he lost his mind near the, the same pattern for all of them um so my mom sort of in the middle of it goes so anubhav just got back from a stand-up comedy tour <laughs> <laughs> and, how did that go down so there was a lot of, and you know, like people are really kind. So this really lovely Indian woman turns to her daughter-in-law who has no idea who I am and is not broadly interested in anything to do with entertainment because we're at some sort of meeting post the funeral of a deceased person. <laughs> so she goes, oh, uh, yeah, Anupab is a touring stand-up comedian. He lives a lot of the time in the UK. And so this daughter-in-law is clearly upset by the death because she wants some tea. <laughs> like she just totally ignored this line of conversation. <laughs> and then just, just had a completely different question. Um, also another household, completely awkward silence. That was pretty good. Where my mom said the same line because my mom has nothing to say in these things I've realized also. She's very uh, proud of you doing stand-up. She wants to do what mums do, right? And say what her kid is doing. I think so. But but think of the, the setting, though. I, my mum does it in, in other settings, which is fine. But in this setting, the I really setting. think it's because the death setting yeah. is because she's run out of other things to say. So either she says, don't know what else there is to say, which is a good line because an 85-year-old man has passed away and that 85-year-old man's wife has nothing to say and his sister is 90 and she's not saying anything. So in the general silence, my mom either says, I guess there's nothing to say or my son just finished a comedy tour. <laughs> and she's probably the only person at the wake who can say that, to be fair. No one else has that line. Correct, correct. There's no other mothers going that. So she's she's already going, listen, maybe it's a status thing, Anavab. She's like, do you have a son? Who, because I guess there are parents of, what, what would the other parents' kids be doing? So the other people your age, what would they be doing for careers? Like they'd be legitimately wealthy. I mean, they would have proper jobs. Proper jobs, <laughs> would, where their moms yeah. could be proper proud. Yeah, except that, you know, that guy who's nearly 50 his dad has passed away and he's not going to come in and say, I'm an established neurosurgeon because he's, you know, he's flying in or whatever to take care of the final. So the last thing anybody wants in the middle of this is someone's mom to pop in a kind of show offy line about their son. 
I love the fact that you've been delegated to be a death doula. So do you have doulas? Uh, yeah. You know, yeah, you know, the birth doulas. I like the fact that now your dad has said, listen, I've done my stuff. I've seen a lot of people die. It'll be my turn one day. So son, I'm sending you forth as my death concierge service. And that's pretty much what he's doing. And when I get back, he asks me, how was it? Like I went say? to a reeve or something. <laughs> what do you say? I gave it five stars, I, Dad. Five stars. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I should have. I should have. I'm not as clever as you, Kelly. I should keep these things in mind. Because I said something like, it was fine. How did you think it would be? And he went, was it fun? <laughs> yeah, but sometimes. I was like, no, you're Sometimes, don't you think the wake, I, I don't, what is the tradition with death? I mean, we may as well, you know, this is a comedy podcast, but let's just get straight into yeah. death. Uh, so what is the tradition? So, so somebody, one of your dad's friends dies. So here, if one of my dad's friends died, uh, first of all, it's two hours away where my dad lives. So I'd say, I don't think I'm going to come and go to the funeral of this person. But then there would be, so maybe 10 days after they died, there would be a funeral, probably in a church, if it's my dad's friend, and then a wake that would probably be quite serious. If someone my age died, there would be a funeral, not in a church, and a wake that would probably be a really good party. So yeah. where does where would the uh, experience you've just had fit in that kind of continuum? So so this was quite a sort of Seinfeldian moment because the Indians they burn their dead, right? So um, that's what I was getting at. I didn't want to go straight in with burning the dead, but yeah, that that was really my question. So they yeah, burn the that, dead. I mean, yeah, yeah, you know that we burn our dead. I mean, just between us, there's not really enough space for if we started burying our dead 1.3 billion people. There just isn't enough space. A lot of people. You know, so, a lot of people. Not, so burning, a lot more I people think, than go to our comedy shows, right? And, and Correct. Yeah. Correct. If if all the deceased attended my comedy show, you know, I, I'd at least be able to afford a higher table than this to do this podcast. Yeah, you do so, it yeah. like you're almost on the ground. Yeah. Yeah. I thought I, it was uh, respectful. I thought you were doing a namaste bow to me as I, the host. I, I 100% am, I, and I'm short as well. My table is short, I'm short. You know, it's because I can't afford a higher table and I'm doing a namaste. It's a mixture of things. But to answer, but to answer your the question. Burning the dead question. So what happened today, um, and I really, really hope this family don't listen to this podcast because... I hope I they would, do because they probably know a lot of that 1.3 billion people and I need listeners, so... Correct. Please tell them to listen to the podcast. Hundred percent, yeah. yeah. And and they probably have a network of other old people who, yeah. So uh, the thing is that when we were leaving, my mum says to me, "Both the deceased sons are in the United States. Do you think that they've cremated the body, or do you think they've kept it till the sons get here?" And I. And I said, why didn't you ask? And my mom goes, well, I can't ask these questions. And I was like, do you think the dead body's still in the house? <laughs> and, and sensibly, my mom says, we shouldn't be talking about this, <laughs> which is a fair, which is a fair <laughs> point, because as a horrifying individual that I am, that's where my mind went, which is, where is the body? Because oftentimes what happens is we, 
I mean, the ritual is you immediately cremate the dead. But immediately, so there's no visiting the body. Because in, in Holland, you know, my kids are half Dutch and they lost both their grandparents in quite quick. I love the fact you're drinking a Starbucks as well. There, That's a nice bit of branding. Maybe they could uh, sponsor the podcast. This is the thing. I'm, I'm drinking water from a Starbucks India cup. Um, so I, I want to come across as like cool and hip. Yeah, I don't know if, if Starbucks... They don't pay their taxes, Anavab. All you're coming across is a nasty capitalist person supporting yeah. the global companies. That is absolutely correct. Also, just as an aside, we don't have a lot of coffee shops in India. So Starbucks is considered the independent small coffee shop ah. because there's no real rival okay. to it. But I should know better. I think you've traveled. probably seen Starbucks elsewhere. Yeah, you've, I like the fact that you're at your mum and dad's, but you've gone out for a coffee. You're like, I like you, but I don't want to drink your drinks. I'm going to go to the Starbucks. My threshold, I don't know how it is with uh, when you're with parents. My threshold in the 24-hour day with parents is about 20 minutes before yeah. I need to leave somewhere so I don't kill anyone. Yes. <laughs> just... So and then 20, there's more 25. bodies to burn. You've got to be careful. Otherwise, the bodies just pile up. I want to exactly. ask you about, so the body, the body burn, and we will get off corpses at some point. Uh, but <laughs> but in, in my, so my kids' grandparents both died in very quick succession. It was very sad. They were in their 70s. It was very sudden. And the Dutch, it's almost a bit like the Irish. So the Dutch lay, have the bodies out, and the bodies are very much part of life then for a few days. And in the old days, they'd have been in the house. Now they're in a special bit of the morgue where you go and you and you hang out with them. And it's quite nice. They have like coffees and little gingerbread biscuits and you and the body's there and everybody comes and people are just chatting across the body, talking about their tax returns and what's happening. And people are very used to death because so like so my kid's little brother was only like four or five and he'd seen two corpses in the space of like six weeks and I did wonder like I thought that's quite a healthy culture the thing that got to me was they were both wearing double denim so they were it which I was like that's that's and then one of the um death tracks what do they call them not death tracks but at the ceremony the going into the fire track was um forever in blue jeans but I don't think it was ironic and I was like so everything about it stuck with me as a tradition and it's very different to in England where you don't tend to see the body yeah. We tend to, you're not meant to really cry at the funeral. So is there, so the body's burnt and people are, is it like a social warm gathering where people are supposed to be, or is it very grief stricken? I know you don't always have a mum talking about stand-up comedy. That's just a special thing when you're there. But what is the tradition then? So this particular household, the sons were away. Because um, they've got so real jobs. They had real jobs. Yeah. They, they live in America, so they, they were going to fly in, I guess. So it's quite quiet. Yeah. But um, so, OK, so I'm going to answer your question in three parts. One, I think they now have a thing in India, um, at least in Calcutta, where I am right now, where you can keep the body for a few days. Um, I think the place is called Peace Haven. Peace Haven. Um, yeah, uh, because my mom just sort of mentioned maybe they'll keep it in, keep him in peace haven and i was like what the hell is peace haven that sounds like a port in the northeast of england peace haven yeah you can yeah, maybe get a ferry from or peace haven to a part of holland yeah yeah it seems like a, a sort of 
tax haven kind of yeah. place near near Dominica, you yes. know, where <laughs> if you've run away from Luxembourg after losing money in hedge funds, you end up. I think it. Starbucks are hiding their taxes in Peace Haven. Yeah, correct, correct. That's, I mean, it all comes back. It, this is all, it's all connected to this drink. I'm telling you. Um, so I guess we now have places where you could keep the body because a lot of people. Um, a, a lot of young Indians are in different countries doing jobs, so I guess there is a place. Second, the gentleman, the deceased, was a big fan of Elvis, and I was thinking if he had an Irish um, or Dutch funeral, um, there'd be quite a bit of Elvis. There wouldn't be Neil Diamond. He liked Neil Diamond. But not um, enough. Yeah, and I'm trying to think of an Elvis song that is connected to a piece of clothing that he could be wearing. Um, but anyway, I... I it's 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 I was too much of right burn, now. I was thinking of that. burning love being quite appropriate. A hunk of hunk of burning love. Yeah. Yeah, that would be that. That would be the, absolutely the right song. Yeah. Um, and the third thing is, if you go to a funeral where all the relatives are there. So I had an uncle pass away when I was really young, and Indians are quite melodramatic as people, as you would have seen across the world as you would have seen with your indian friends and family uh, lots of singing dancing loud now i i personally am not that sort of person uh, so when i go to a very melodramatic event uh, like a funeral of someone who's unexpectedly passed away I, I i cannot necessarily bring the appropriate melodrama mm -hmm. i um, and i don't know maybe it's part of attending a british school in india i don't know what it is but a lot of your culture has left me quite stoic and unresponsive to what my culture demands. Are you blaming um, us for the fact that you're emotionally fucked up? Just checking. basically. Yeah. I think that's okay. basically. Yeah, yeah. Am I personally implicated or individually? I'm individually yeah. <laughs> on this podcast. Okay. Blaming my friend. Yeah. And famous comedian, TV presenter, star. Uh, you for this particular for fucking situation. you up no that's yeah. good it's good to get this stuff out there because uh you know this is a safe space and uh, we you. need to have all our honest opinions out there because you do have um i think anyone who knows your work and really right back at you Annabelle, because you are the big star you've written novels you've had stuff you've i didn't realize that you've had something made into a bollywood movie is that right did you have something that ended up being a bollywood movie that you wrote yeah, I've, I've written about five films for Bollywood. You've written Six. five Bollywood movies. So how many how many billions of people have seen your movies then, if we were to guess? The, 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 good, for, the, the good thing about writing a Bollywood movie, although it's changing now, the good thing is that you've got a, about 11 minutes of writing between all the singing and dancing. So you could probably write six Bollywood movies in about half a day because you're just filling the space between singing and dancing. <laughs> so some sort of plot complication, a villain, it's not that hard to do. Kali, you could do it. We could do it together. Even, I th you almost said even you could do it, and then you realised that you shouldn't say even, that it should just be you could do it. But we know from stand-up that writing a strong 11 minutes, that can take longer Difficult. than half a day. That can take Difficult. two years. It's difficult. By the way, that was a brilliant... Uh, sort of even you could do it. I wasn't going to say that. I was going to say we could do it in the length of this podcast, but but a lovely self-deprecatory 
thing about Bollywood thrown in there. I think you um, and I have in common self-deprecation. I think we 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 um we had our Edinburgh shows next door to each other, didn't we? We did. And, we um, did. and that was our excuse for never seeing the other ones. We were like, I'd love to see it, but I'm busy doing my show. But we would have um instead of doing what Americans would do is like high five and you fucking feeling this, it's gonna be awesome. We were like, well we're really quite shit. We shouldn't be here. And nobody cares whether we live or die. That was our vibe, wasn't it? My my the I think it was day three in Edinburgh when I realized I really need to be friends with this person was when you left your show and we met and I said hello, hello, and you said hello, hello. And you said, I'm doing something in this room, I'm not quite sure what. It takes about <laughs> 45 minutes. And that's how you sort of summed up what was a fantastic sold-out show, because I could hear it. But you made it sound like you were you were involved in some sort of catering responsibilities. You made it sound so ordinary that you were doing something for 45 minutes, like making a sandwich for a group of homeless people. Yeah. That would have been a like, proper I, gift to society if I'd been making sandwiches for homeless people. That would have been something with purpose instead of what correct. we were doing. It, instead it, of the Edinburgh Bridge. Correct. <laughs> and is it, it's funny, isn't it? Because people... Um, well, you and I got into stand. I looked at your birth. I looked at your birthday, assuming everything on Wikipedia is true, which obviously it always is. You have the same birthday always. as my daughter. I mean, not the same year. I should say, <laughs> I'm not that old. <laughs> I was going to say, uh, your daughter's born on the 27th of April. Yeah, my daughter is 27th of April. So two yeah. days after Einstein, three days before Hitler. There you go. I hadn't mentioned Hitler to her, but I'll send her a WhatsApp afterwards. She'll like that. Yeah. So, what's it like to be between Einstein and Hitler? Well, you know, uh, I, I also found that there was a noted Indian yoga guru who ran away to Oregon in the United States after tax evasion, who shares a birthday with your daughter and me. Um, and his name is Osho. They've done a Netflix documentary on him. And it's basically... Was he the, guy, whole... was he the guy that had that whole cult? Um, yes. That, what was the name of the cult? I mean, it was, it was after him. His name was Osho. And basically, they were all sort of followers of Osho. And it was the documentary was amazing. It was like a four-part documentary on Netflix. Oh yeah, I didn't know he was, was a twenty-seventh of April guy. It was called uh, it was called Wild Wild Country. And, yeah, it was an uh, amazing. Uh, I put a link to it in the show notes. I was gripped by that, weren't you? It was fantastic, fantastic documentary. I my favorite part of that. I know we have, we've gone various topics, but my favorite part of that was when. He started out talking about wisdom and, and love and all of that. But slowly, as you know, the federal authorities started closing in on him and he started having fights with his lieutenants and so on. And with one particular woman who was his assistant, Man and Sheila, when when it got really sort of tough for him, all his morning sermons changed to like really personal things. Yeah. <laughs> like like that woman, she is a wench. Like it, went it became like an angry man face. shouting about his neighbours, didn't it, over a fence to anyone yeah. who would listen instead yeah. of an inspiration. Yeah. Although the women were, everybody in it was was bloody weird, right? I didn't, the, the woman, it was Sheila, wasn't it, who the whole documentary was done yeah. through the voice of. She was a nasty strain. I did not like her. She, I did not want her to be my friend. Did you like her? But yeah, Kelly, I don't know what you found wrong with her. I mean, all she tried to do was poison an entire town by putting arsenic <laughs> in their drinking water. I I don't know what you found and then so to offensive justify, about And that. then to justify it, that was the weird thing, wasn't it? Like, even in retrospect, 
she wasn't like a sweet old lady saying, I really lost my way. You know, the menopause was very hard for me and they didn't have HRT. So I poisoned my neighbor. Instead, she doubled down on it. She was like, yes. And, you know, that she, it was like she still really thought what she did was the right thing. It was really strange. So you, so that evil man, you and my daughter all have something in common. Correct, correct. I'm, so I'm trying to get my head around this time, new information. I mean, if you don't hear from me for a while and I've run away to Oregon and started a comedy <laughs> cult of people who've decided to give up and wear red robes and poison a town, um, of which there are many comedian colleagues in Britain that I've come across who'd happily, I think, uh, for a few nonsensical jargons, sort of go over to some wild, wild country and be part of a mediocre commune. Um, I think we are just part you know, of a mediocre commune, aren't we? I think that kind of is the way you could sometimes describe how it feels on the circuit. A mediocre commune. We haven't really commune. paid. We haven't really paid any dividends. We've not really given no. up our freedom. We know we're all a bit weird. We don't fit in anywhere yeah. else. But we're not going to fully commit to the cult. We'll just pop in for two hours in the evening, and then we'll go Correct. back and pretend to be normal people. Exactly. Sorry to interrupt. I, I, speaking of mediocre communes. I don't What's know your heard, dad doing? Yeah, I did hear. There is some sort of Indian drumming that... So one of the things that about India that I've come to realize, and I've done a few podcasts for, with friends in the UK and, and, and for radio and so on, that there's always... I don't know if you can hear this. I can there's hear always it. some sort of an insane kind of music that starts out of nowhere. And who's Which playing those drums? Which requires find another quiet. Is, is it someone in your house? I think there's... Yes, yes. It's, it's my father who's really happy that his friend is dead. So yeah. he's got himself a Finally, drum. Finally, he's, he's able to have emotions, not like his son. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He's ecstatic, so he's yeah. playing this drum. I assume it's because we're reaching the end of a series of religious festivals. One of the benefits of living in a country with 330 million gods is that there's always some sort of religious festival. The Festival um, of Light you've just had. Diwali. We've just had Diwali. Yeah. And I was going to talk to you about that. But I assume this is the end of Diwali, or it could just be a lunatic. That's the thing about India. Well, both. It could be a lunatic at the end of Diwali, right? <laughs> Correct. Who decides three days after Diwali to pull out a drum and start playing it outside my house, where there is you know, no religious shrine or temple or anything. Well, I've got very so, similar noise going on here and it's the builders next door. So I think yours is a much cooler disturbance to it. In fact, next time this happens and disturbs one of my podcasts, I'm going to use the, oh, that's somebody playing Indian drums. It's not building work. Have you been to Kentish Town? Because I've seen you in Camden. I know you've got as far as Camden, which is only half a mile from me. Did you ever make it to Kentish Town? I have uh, last month, actually. I had a couple of shows in Kentish Town. We did a show in Camden. We um, did, and we did very well. You were the, I think you were the headliner, and I was a nobody in that show. It's very kind of you to say that. I, th I don't think it was organized in that. I think I was a person that showed up. You turned up late, and they had to put you on last. That's exactly it. That's, you, you could by default be a headliner. If you always By just late. saying you've arrived from another country. <laughs> yeah. And it's just, they're like, oh. It's working for fun. you, that approach. You're doing well with it. Thank you. <laughs> I, I, I mean... Just to switch topics, given we've already switched 14 of them, um, I always am a little terrified when I go for a late night show to Camden because this particular time when I was arriving, 
uh, I wanted to get early, get there early because I wanted to see your show. But there were at least two different amateur robberies that I crossed and what looked like some sort of teenage, teenage celebration, but it was basically a brawl. So um, I'm sure it's a great place to live, but on Saturdays, uh, it feels a bit like a Visigoth invasion. It, it doesn't... <laughs> yeah, Camden is... I've lived in this area for 30 years with a little break when I lived in Holland, but mm -hmm. virtually the whole of that time I've lived around that area. And Camden is a whole different world at night. The good news is because my kids went to the local schools, usually when there's a drug dealer on a corner, mm. I usually know, the, know their name yeah. because they yeah. went to school with my kids. And often they'll say, hi, Ella's mum. Or hi, Jake's mum. And I think, say what you like, but these these fighting, knife-wielding drug dealers, they have nice manners, you know? They still say hello to their friend's mum. I think that's, so and, that's and a nice were they, thing. Did they do very well at GCSEs? Because usually the really bright ones end up selling narcotics, whereas the mediocre ones end at consulting firms and investment banks. But the really bright ones end up as entrepreneurs. I think you're thinking more of the sort of things, you know, if Daniel Craig was in a movie about someone running a class A drug business, I think those are yes. the ones who've got a lot of qualifications. I think the ones on the street corners, uh, you know, cutting up cocaine with talcum powder, I don't know if they were the ones, I mean, as role models to other children listening, I would say maybe not the, not the career path to go down. But, you know, as a freelancer, I really appreciate other freelancers. Like when I'm yeah, working side hustle. It could be a side yeah. hustle. On top of comedy, yeah. you could do that, but maybe not your main hustle. But even just as, a, as just an observer and admirer, like when I'm walking to Camden, I'm going to do a freelance gig. And when I see a couple of people just, you know, drugged out of their mind, you know, just, you know, having a bit of a fight, just, just lunatics, shouting at an ATM. I can I can sort of relate as a freelancer because they probably are in the middle of a freelance narcotics transaction. And they probably are going into that gig because often that gig has the people who've spilt in from the streets in Camden into the gig. It was, I think the night we were there was a quite a strange atmosphere. I heard you, you're normally very uh, polite. You have a lovely way of, a lovely turn of phrase, very kind gentleman. And that night you said fuck on stage. I mean, I wasn't counting. I'm going to say six fucks that time. That's not like you, is it, to fuck so much? And it isn't. And interestingly, um, there were two definite drug dealers in the audience. Um, and I think that they, would, they, were, they loved your set and they loved the joke so much that they sort of kept laughing about inter- because I bought the drugs of the off them before the show. Do you not know that's what you're doing, Camden? If you haven't bought the drugs and the dealers yeah. come in the show, they don't much like you. I didn't know that. You know what also threw me off? That they were middle-aged Belgian ladies. Yeah. So They're that the worst threw me off kind a little of dealers. Bit. Yeah. Because I didn't know how quickly the demographic had changed. So two things. I had just, every time I walk to Camden, I'm appreciative of drug dealers because I'm like freelancer to freelancer. I can see what you're doing. You know, you're also trying to make a buck on Saturday night. So am I. Now, it's, it's so as long as the relationship ends there, it's fine. But like you're saying, some of them make that money, deposit it into those ATMs, um, and then enter our gigs. Yes, they do. And this particular gig, two really rough drug dealers, 45-year-old <laughs> 40, Belgian ladies, yes. um, just could not contain themselves uh, based on something you said in your set, 
and then it spilled over into my set and I am uh, being an incredibly um, non-adaptive performer um, <laughs> found my entire set which is about history sort of <laughs> awry and then not having anything to back myself up with uh, started swearing um, <laughs> it's it's happened to me a few times before when I was 12 years old and I was being thrashed by older boys in my school I resorted to similar things two or three jokes when, <laughs> and then when that didn't work I just started swearing and they beat me up the two Belgian ladies had the same sort of impact on me but again going back to Camden it's a uh, yeah all of this happened because of that walk we have to do on Saturday nights to get to the gig um, which is sort of like walking past uh, a Syrian battlefield and uh, and some sort of an American high school shootout at the same time. Namaste, motherfuckers. It's funny when you think about your material because you're quite a you know you're quite a clever guy, Anavab. I think it's fair to say you you know you've been a journalist, you've written amazing stuff, and your comedy material is beautifully crafted. So it's very it's very clever. It's very beautiful. It's a work of great. Yeah, of, of great art. So what do you, so do you really not improvise much? Do you really find it hard to just go, fuck it, I'm going to have to rip up the rule book now and just do something else because these people don't want to hear about history and empire? What happens? Well, it's very kind of you to say, uh, Kelly. I, 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 I mean, sometimes you have to improvise. Uh, I'm actually sort of a, a little flustered because uh, I think those are the um, nicest things that's been ever said about uh, things I've done for a living for about 15 years. So I, I'm, I'm not used Nicer to Nicer than any of the reviews we didn't get in Edinburgh, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I just finished a Soho run and the review said, fine. It was fine. <laughs> I bet it didn't so, say fine. I bet if I look it up, and I should have looked it up before I spoke to you, yeah. I bet it did not say fine. Well, it didn't say all the nice things you just said put in that order. And uh, it, it first, it takes me a while to process it because English is my second language. So automatically, my head is a little screwed up. And then, you know, but anyway, coming to improvisation, I, I tend to have to improvise a lot because I don't know if you're finding this, but post-pandemic, uh, I realize audiences have sort of, they're either between sort of having lost their minds and or are looking for petrol or are only half present. Or vegetables. Or They're hard nowadays for us as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's or a lot of pressure. Vegetables. By the time you get to a gig, a lot has happened. And and I don't know if this has happened to you, but in the last month or so, I've seen a lot of people wanting to converse. Mm. So you'd say a thing and then they want to say something back. And either it's because they haven't spoken to anyone because they've been home for a long time in the pandemic. So. I realized you can't just go out there with 45 minutes of other British Empire without getting some lip back. Mm -hmm. um, and it's uh, I've now decided to treat stand up more like a domestic argument. Um, so I'm ready for something that will come back from my partner and then I will say something. And, you know, it, so it's a little improvisational, but I have all my excuses and defensive tactics ready like Arsenal. 
So, you know, it's, it's a bit like that, I've realized. I and your aim somewhere... is to come out with a relationship intact. You're like, it doesn't matter if it's a good relationship, as long as we still have a relationship. Like the review said, fine. Fine. You know, I think that's... It's a mediocre marriage, but it's my marriage. It's, um, the, do you find... I find that audiences are quite kind still, so that if they're, if they're noisy, they're not being assholes. They've just forgotten the rules of comedy a little bit. And they've forgotten the rules of interaction. So then somebody on a stage with a microphone, it's all up for grabs, really, who thinks they should have the room. Because also, I think as comedians, we've forgotten how to do our job a bit. So all that natural muscle memory we work to have because we gigged day in, day out, that sometimes is lacking. So my very... I've never had... Sorry, sorry to interrupt. Uh, I just... My question for you was, have you ever had sort of a personal heckle? I know a lot of our colleagues often talk about heckles where um because i've had lots of personal heckles yeah i have have you no so that's the thing it's it's been you know i hear about it a lot in all these years i've never had anyone heckle and say you know this is rubbish or whatever all the heckles i've had were content related like what what would be what would be a so would it be a historical yeah fact correction exactly exactly like what what would they say I was in Newcastle recently, and I begin by saying, you know, uh, I learned the British, I learned the English language because there was a gun pointed in my face. And I'm paraphrasing, but it's sort of loosely, you know. A, yeah, start a gently, that. bring them in gently. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Just, just gently talking about yeah. the, about the, the country you're in. Empire. Yeah, it's nice. It's yeah. a winning yeah, thing. Yeah. 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 If yeah. anyone wants just notes like we, on how to do comedy, please listen hard. Just like we started with death, you know, yeah. it's just the only Let's way Let's go start, in hard. You know, just, yeah. We started with funeral pie. Um, so I was, do, I was talking about, you know, whatever, learning, having to learn language because of this and the other. And this northern audience, the gentleman said, that wasn't us. We built the Indian railways. Now, that sort of thing. Like, I feel like it's a very radio. <laughs> I couldn't. He was right. Because all the railway engines were from Higginbotham and Company in Newcastle. Then it became a bit of a TED talk because I am actually interested in trains that were built in Newcastle that ran in India. So then I said, here is a person I want to talk to. And my problem is then I forgot about the stand up. And then I I just felt like I want to talk to this guy for about an hour. And then was there a um, hen party from Newcastle? Because when I've done gigs in Newcastle, I'd say 80% of the audience has been hen parties and stag do's, none of whom give much of a fuck about the empire, I would say. So was there a bit of a backlash from such people when you were having your railway conversation? There wasn't, you know, I just... They just left. I just feel like if you <laughs> take it to such a bizarre intellectual historical place and... You were recently on a Richard Osman show, so you are an intellectual, as far as I'm, I'm glad concerned. you mentioned that. Let's let's get that out there. Yes, yeah, celebrity pointless. Because, and the reason because... Anavab's mentioning this, lovely listeners, because I did delay the podcast in favour of Richard Osman, didn't I? Which was was a bit of a wanker move, really, on my part. That's not why I'm bringing it up. I'm bringing it up because if I know one friend in the world <laughs> that could cover Roman emperors, you know, Korean shoe sizes and different kinds of lamps and having to answer questions about that it's you so i i figured that that there's something well deserving who has a wide knowledge of these things and i sometimes feel like i if there is an audience member that wants to talk about something specific like railway engines from 1911 the hen party will just have to carry on like it'll just have to come with us 
And to be fair, whatever we're saying at that point, I do wonder if the hen parties at a certain point in proceedings are really taking any of it in. I'm like, we could actually probably do a TED talk about railways and it probably would be fine at that point. I don't really think anyone gives a shit at a certain moment. That's what I mean, Kelly, because you do really intelligent stuff. And people always say, oh, you know, there are rough nights where there are drunk people, etc. But what I've found is that if you go full Michael Palin, if you go full, right, then they're either too smashed to come along with you. So they're just staring at you like you're a piece of rock, right? Which is the look we want in our audiences, right? The you're a piece of rock look. That's, that's, I cherish it. Me too. You know, that's what Love gets that me to my fine performances. <laughs> that's what gets that's me. That's why we do look. this, right? I mean, Christ, that's what makes us feel alive. A full Michael Palin. Do you, um, I, I do sometimes think there's, uh, it, it, it takes quite a while to learn to hold the kind of awkward, right? So when there is a silence, when you first start out, you just speak more, I used to just speak more quickly and think, well, I'll get all my content out really quickly, like a recital, like a really bad school play. And then I'll leave you be. And then I realized sometimes when you double down on stuff, if you hold the silence and allow there to be time, it kind of looks like you get the status back, right? And then the audience thinks, oh, maybe this person's quite confidently saying this stuff. Maybe I should listen. Do you use that? Like just doubling down on your style rather than averting I I remember seeing, uh, sorry, I'm going to answer this question with just sort of this little anecdote. I remember seeing Eddie Izzard in Mumbai and he, we talked a little before the show and he asked a lot of questions about the Mumbai audience and what they like, etc. So I thought here's a world famous comedian who's going to now come out and talk to Mumbai about Mumbai and etc. He comes out, packed audience. And the first thing he says is, so, Charles the first. <laughs> and he just lets that sit for four seconds and he gets a big laugh, right? I mean, he eventually got to Mumbai and stories, but but he had a thing about Charles the first that he wanted to do. And he came out and started talking about Charles the first being beheaded. He didn't care what city he was in. He didn't care what he was. And I sort of feel like, like exactly like you said, if you go out there, and they're going to talk about broad gauge railway engines from Newcastle in 1911. Um, I think if you go full Newcastle steam engine, Michael Portillo, if you go full, then, you know, the five girls named Hetty who've come for a birthday party or whatever, at some point will catch up with the steam engines, you know, but... And if they're not laughing, they're like, learning. So you're giving them a good service. Thank you. It may be the best thank education you. they've had. Uh, anyone in that room is, is hearing you talk about railway engines. Is there um, the, the difference between, I've never, I've actually never been to India, let alone gigged in India. So if you want to pull any strings and about to get me over there on some stuff, I'd be very fascinated to come. And They would I, love, they would, I think, I think we only have a short problem now, which is none of our auditoriums are open. And traditionally... The art form works better if I could organize something on a stage rather than in You could stand next rooms. to the drummer outside your house and see if what see if people are interested. This is the thing. This is we could He's given up, there. he's fucked off, hasn't he? He's like, I did that for three minutes, nothing happens. I'm <laughs> he's, not, he's, gone, he's taken his drums, hasn't he? He's I know. He's gone that. to the next funeral or wherever. Yeah, he didn't give gone. a shit. He yeah. wasn't committed to that. No. 
He's like, you think you can do an entertaining podcast? Yeah. I want to be on the podcast. Yeah, and, and then he, he was like, this, this is going nowhere. They keep jumping around. I'm yeah. sick of it. My arm's hurting. The guy's drinking yeah. water out of a Starbucks cup. What the fuck is this? Yeah. I need a new venue. But is he's, there a he's, different... Uh, he's, gone to, he's gone to the guilty feminist now. That's that's where he's playing now. He's not going to be, he's going to be a different podcast. And is, the, and is the difference? So given I don't even know, I've never, I, I, I've never been to India, but certainly I've never done comedy in India. So what's the difference between i'm sure it's not a difference but the difference between the because you started at the comedy store in mumbai right that's how you got into stand-up so what what are the are there a kind of few headline differences between between comedy here and comedy in india well you know it's a lot there's a, a lot more schadenfreude uh, if i'm pronouncing that correctly a, a lot of laughing at misfortune in india and a, there's there's not much self-deprecation um but then there's obvious cultural stuff. Like I remember Mickey Flanagan coming to India. He was a giant in the UK at the time and talking about wearing a kimono in the 80s and having a Cockney accent and trying to go on a date with a woman. And that, should we say, was not wildly relatable. Like people couldn't, didn't know much about class differences in Britain and, you know, why a Cockney person sounded a certain way and what that meant about their economic class, etc. So, but, but when the comedy store started, they wanted to come across as sophisticated enough to attend a place like that. Okay. So there'd be huge laughter, but without any incentive to laugh. They would just laugh because they were there. And That's my favorite audience. Yeah, it's laugh great. Laugh because you Mickey Flanagan is pretending like he's putting on a kimono. Uh, because afterwards, I met some of those people. They were like, no, this Cockney accent, what is it actually? You know, so they would have a lot of very basic. <laughs> they were like, my sides are hurting from laughing so much. But what the fuck was funny about that? Yeah, it's like everyone else was laughing. We paid 4,000 rupees. This better. So, but that was the early years. Now, of course, you know, the sort of less funny aspect of it is there are enough Indian comedians and the culture found its footing and started making fun of its own things, etc. And, you know, they didn't relate that much to the British stuff, but Indian comedy found its own place. Mm -hmm. So, um, so you've got competition now, which is irritating, right? And, and not only, not only is it competitive, I don't know if you feel this way, just performing anywhere in the world, actually, is sometimes I now go to comedy, young people doing comedy, to, to just learn the references. Yes, me too. And then I come home and I write the set. Like, yes. I, I don't even know what's being talked about anymore. Do you find, because um, my kids my kids were my cultural reference points, so I felt I was pretty good with all of that stuff. And now the kids have both left. I have no clue. There's, like, words I don't understand. There's words I know. I get just a sense if I were to say that word, I can hear my daughter metaphorically in my ear going, Mom, that is cannot say that like that's not a word you can use so I still feel I've got an inner sense like people have therapy for years and they take the therapist around with them to help guide them I feel yeah. I take my kids around with me to put me back in my box but you do miss though because it is a very I think you have to sort of own that as well I don't quite admit on stage I say I'm a 50 year old woman I'm not a 50 year old woman I'm in my 50s and I don't and my kids are 21 and 25 and I haven't worked out a way to really admit any of that we're because not because in real life I'm worried to admit it, but I just think if I'm at Top Secret on Drury Lane with an audience that is almost all under 30, and I just and they realize early on my kids are their age, 
how could they not just think, well, I've got no interest in anything you have to say? I don't know, maybe I'm wrong, but that's what I worry about. But Kelly, I think they would be interested because they sort of look at us like we're from another world. You like, know? So like if a I, dinosaur flew in and explained yeah. its anatomy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, like if, when I got up there and say, I'm from Mumbai and I'll tell you some stories from India. And when you go up there and say, you know, I'm 50 and I'll tell you some stories. I think they're gauging us the exact same way that two foreign objects have entered yeah. top secret and they'll tell us some stories from their world. And it's fascinating you know, so, because we didn't even, we'd forgotten it even existed, these people. So, yeah, they're a, they're a reminder of a world we didn't yeah. know about. But also they, the good thing about some of these clubs is young people laugh very easily and a lot. So I've often been misled to top secret into thinking I'm a good comedian because, uh, because people, I think, are just enjoying the fact that it's two pounds to watch the comedy and there's lots of free drinks. So that can be And no COVID well. protocols. It's like game on. Just, just you know, live, live like you're in Freshers' Week at university every night. I think we've all had that thing at Top Secret where you're trying new material and you just think, well, I'm the next George Carlin. That was amazing. I mean, they loved me. I've written a beautiful new seven minutes. It was gold. And then you do it anywhere else. You're like, okay. <laughs> Tumbleweed. Yeah. Which exactly. is why we love Top Secret, but it's not a great, uh, it's not a great test as to how great we are as comedians. I mean, you know, it's a great performance space, but everyone that I, I looked around and I don't think there was a single person in the audience that uh, was born before the cell phone. Yes, um, you're I, right. I, yeah. I, I couldn't, you know, there wasn't anyone that would have seen Margaret Thatcher or any, or any of the communist of the USSR or any of those things. And um, probably not a lot of railway aficionados either, disappointingly not, for you. Not a huge fan of railway. But I figured that, you know, if let's say if somebody is going to go and talk about sort of their life, Right, which is I don't know what their life is for twenty year old in DMs in my Instagram, you know, pictures of private parts, etc. Whatever young people sort of do on Tinder or whatever. If if I feel like then then I have the full right to talk about things that interest me, which is you know the birth of electricity. Uh, Those kind of sexy early, topics that go viral. <laughs> early Mesopotamia. Yeah, <laughs> I feel like. Broad you know, appeal, I'm, broad to the appeal, audience. yeah. Broad appeal. I'm, I'm gonna bring this game to it because if, if that's what you know, like I, I, I don't get pictures of penises in my DM. I, I, I don't know what DM even means. I know it's hard to believe, but um, I, like today, I spent the day attending a funeral service, and no pictures no of dick penises pics. came into my phone, and and it's worrying. I'm a 44 year old. Indian man, I expect at least three or four. It's fascinating to know your, to think of you getting into comedy, you know, slightly younger than I did, but from a probably also unlikely direction. And is it for you, is it the writing or the performing? Because you're definitely a really strong writer, do you, or is it the combination? Because I, I really struggle with writing, but I love performing. That's definitely my thing. So what about you? Where's the, where's the alchemy of that? Yeah, so I enjoy both. You know, one thing that struck me um, when we met was when you mentioned that you had spent many years in the corporate world and then you switched out for comedy. And um, what I really loved is that 
um, unlike most comedians that I come across, you actually still had a sense of humor, <laughs> like about the thing we do. And uh, it felt like maybe the, you know, and I still sort of do the thing I do, but like you, we often joke about the thing we do, right? Um, whereas I think that we're in an industry where a lot of people that do the thing we do are very serious people. They're very serious people, but they do comedy, which is fine. They've got 20 great minutes, but they don't see the absurdity of the thing we do. And and I remember thinking maybe you people need that perspective because you were very funny the first time we met. We were joking about the possible reviews we could get in Edinburgh. And I said something that, about um, getting it from some sort of livestock magazine might cover it. <laughs> and I was very excited, <laughs> very excited. And then by the end, you were like, I wish I'd got one from a livestock magazine because you and I yeah. both had the same thing, that the shows did really well and sold out, but we couldn't get any reviewers. And until the very end, I got my best review from the Scotsman uh, the day after the whole festival ended. <laughs> I was like, well, that would have really been nice to get at the beginning. That I think that I, I think that that reviewer is now playing drums outside my I house. I think he is. I think he needs to fuck think. off because we've still got we've still got a bone to pick with him. Namaste, motherfuckers. What would you pick then, Anavab, as your namaste, motherfucking, life changing moment? I think it had to be um, when I had gone in as a journalist to do a story on the comedy store in Mumbai. So Don Ward, who ran a comedy store, um, was having an audition, and I was sent in by this. I'm not making this up. Man's World Magazine India to do. A, I was. A, I had just left my full time job, and I was a freelance journalist to do a thing, uh, to do a story. And the editor said, "Look, there's something called British comedy that's going to happen in this mall. Um, they're going to do stand up comedy. It sounds like a horrendous idea." Why don't you see if you can do an article about it? And I went there and I said, I'm from this magazine. And Don said, I've never heard of this magazine. I said, would you give me an interview? And he said, not till you get up there and do some stand up because you're in the middle of my audition. Did you not know? I, I said, I had no idea. Your PR person said I could talk to you. He said, no, 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 there's an audition going on. I need you to go and stand up and do five minutes of comedy. And I had, I was really so I had my little note and paper and everything. And he said, nah, I don't give a shit. I, so I went up there and did the five minutes of basically what I've been repeating for about 15 years, 20 years. It's basically the stuff that I did in Camden 20 years later, no improvement. Um, and he said, that's not bad. What are you doing tonight? I said, what do you mean? I said, I mean, what kind of thing is this? I've got a laugh from a 35-year-old person. And he said, no, no, come tonight. We're opening this comedy club and I need you to uh, do five minutes of comedy. Um, and yeah, I, 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 um, I just don't know how I would fit the words namaste and motherfucker with that moment. But I can now see all these years later, having met you, that that is really the only way to describe it. That is your life changing moments. And um, and he loved your stuff about railways, right? He was like, we all need to hear this. Come and do it tonight. I think uh, I think that particular night, it was even more obscure. I was doing early gunfire. Uh, I Quite think specific. I was doing, yeah, I was doing uh, turn of the century. Uh, what kind of weapons did people have? Why did, why did swords and harpoons lose out to early muskets? 
I think uh, that I muskets, great in for a, <laughs> muskets in a Mumbai mall. I mean, certainly that never had happened before. So uh, that if that doesn't qualify for a namaste motherfucking moment, I, I really don't know what would. And what is to your... a crowd of 20 year olds? I thought yeah. that, that would be an appropriate Literally thing. perfect. Yeah. I'm sure everybody said from that moment, this is written in the stars. This guy, he's going to be India's Eddie Izzard. It's just a matter of when, not if. Everyone said genius, genius. One person said fine. And yeah. I think that somehow <laughs> and they the followed you around. became more popular. <laughs> yeah, it your did, whole did, did. career. And what is yeah. your favorite joke? Oh, wow. Yeah, I know this was coming. Um, I don't, you know, I, I don't, uh, I, I thought a lot about how to answer this, Kelly. And I, I have to say, I don't really have a favorite joke. I do love the Eddie's art bit about not having a flag. I'm, I'm very fond of that. I know I've mentioned him twice in this podcast to make it seem like I don't watch any other stand-up comedians. To be honest, you know, it's, I don't, it's just you He's and him. He's got it all, hasn't it's, he? Yeah. Yeah, it's him and you. I mean, these are the... I think the, you've got it covered uh, with him and me. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think I between him, you and me, we actually, I mean, that's certainly a Radio 4 show they could never cancel, right? What bit of life advice, if there's one bit of life advice you could give to anybody listening, what would it be? Uh, if you want to be a comedian, uh, do, uh, I mean, I think that this is, I, I would presume to, to to think that this is life advice we would both give to somebody, but I, w- I would tell them, if you want to do comedy, please go do something else first. You Anything, mean financially or for wisdom? Both, for both. Catch fish. Uh, sell drugs. Do, sell drugs, work for Her Majesty's Tax Department, uh, build broad gauge railways. Um, you know, stitch shoes along with other small children in third world countries, anything, do anything. And you probably people say, you know, I think the biggest thing I've come across when I became a comedian was, you know, oh, I have four minutes and I had three minutes and people always talk in minutes of material. I think if you've lived a life, you've got, you know, you've got material. If you're a murderer, I think you have a set already. You have a great set. So go commit um, murder, and then when you come out of prison, be a stand-up. So how many, wouldn't you love it at Top Secret? And, you know, I, I almost feel like I've heard this set at Top Secret, but I haven't. Someone came out and said, just got out of jail, uh, got a couple of stories for you. We'd all sit back, right? Like, we'd all be like, okay, this is going to be something. I think it's um, what I'm most struck by is as a podcast guest that you started on death and ended on murder. And again, I feel that I don't think that's ever happened as a narrative arc before, but it has a beautiful, a beautiful namaste symmetry. This is the thing. I I came in saying I will not bring up my day with Kelly. I'll be optimistic (laughs) and we'll start with some general chit chat. But I got into it. And the first thing I had to tell you. Heavy death attended straight from the start. This is full death, full death day. That was Anavab Pal. Every episode, as you know, I pick a thing inspired by my guests that I'm going to do. And this week, 
I admit it's a bit of a tenuous link. It's about playing the piano. So let's say it was inspired by Anna Vab's involvement in Bollywood movies, which, you know, it kind of could be. So I have talked about this before on the podcast. I used to be pretty good at the piano, but most of all, I used to love playing it. And I've been kind of also inspired by one of my very close friends this week, who's been helping me through a bit of a, a bit of a sticky week for various reasons. And um, he's taught himself the piano to grade eight. Uh, over a a relatively short period of time as an adult so I figure if he can do that I can at least start playing the thing again so I'm going to be playing the piano every day this week not to be brilliant but just to enjoy it so that is it for this episode we'll be back in your feed next Monday as always when I will be talking to British novelist songwriter and journalist Louisa Young one of the things which comes up constantly is if you're in love with an addict does it mean that you're addicted to the addict and might be no more than any other love. Namaste Motherfuckers was written and presented by me, Callie Beaton, and produced by Mike Hansen and Karusha Dami for Pod People Productions with music by Jake Yap. I'm Callie Beaton. Until next time, motherfuckers. Namaste Motherfuckers. Pod People. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip (laughs) off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.